A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And our cases this week, an heiress is abducted on her morning run. The mother of two was grabbed and then thrown into an SUV, but not without a fight. And that fight forced the attacker to lose his sandals, say police. The DNA on those slide-on sandals led investigators to the man they say killed her. But first... A mother who never gave up looking for the man she believes killed her daughter is one step closer to getting justice. Yes, I got him. That's Crystal Mitchell's mother at the news conference announcing the murder suspect who was on the run for six years had just been captured by U.S. Marshals in El Salvador. He was teaching English and he taught one of his students just enough English so that student could call the authorities and tell them, I think that man wanted for murder in the United States is my teacher. We are recording this on Thursday, September 8th of 2022. Our guest today is Tracy Tambora, a criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. She is a nationally recognized expert on crimes of domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Tracy, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Anna. So good to be back. I enjoyed our discussion last time, so I'm eager to get started today. Yeah, I love that your students were listening. It's it's wonderful. Yes, I got a lot of emails after the last uh, broadcast from former students who watch your show daily. So we love congratulations that. Congratulations to you, Anna, for doing oh. such a wonderful job. Thank you. We appreciate Tracy. And for those of you who are watching, we have a tiny little guest visiting. There she is, Jackie O. You could see her at the bottom of the screen. She insisted on being part of the podcast today, so hopefully she won't be barking. But as you can see by her ears, she's listening very, very closely to what we're saying. All right, let's get to our first case here, Tracy. You know, this is a murder that I covered for Crime Watch Daily. It is the murder of 30-year-old Crystal Mitchell. She was a mother of two, and she was killed in San Diego while on vacation with her new boyfriend, Raymond McLeod, who goes by the name of RJ. Now, by the time Crystal's body was found, RJ was long gone. He was on the run for six years until last week. RJ was captured by U.S. Marshals in El Salvador. The 37-year-old former Marine was skilled at evading capture, but there was one person on this planet that he could not outwit, and that was Crystal's mother, who was a former cop herself. This is what Crystal's mother, Josephine Wenzel, told ABC's Good Morning America. It's not about being a former detective. It's about being a mom. It's that mama bear. It's that mom determination that I gave birth to this child. And so help me God, I'm going to take care of this child until I die. So Tracy, the thing about RJ being suspected here is also his history of domestic violence that is very well documented. Two specific cases that... He was arrested on the last one um, he bailed out on. And we'll get a little bit more into the details of that. But as that being your area of expertise, are you surprised? Again, charged, 
innocent until proven guilty. But are you surprised at all at the pattern, the history, and then the acceleration, if you will, of um, more rapid, more rapid violence, I would say? Yeah, sure. No, uh, not surprising. Many perpetrators of domestic violence um, have repeated histories of of this type of behavior. Um, It is not uh, uncommon for an individual who engages in uh, domestic violence to then move on from a victim to another victim. Uh, You know, sometimes the media lends leads us to think that perpetrators of domestic violence will fixate and stay with just one victim. In my experience, um, uh, as a victim's advocate, as well as as a, as a researcher and professor, um, perpetrators of domestic violence are more likely to just move on to the next victim once the first victim either, you know, cuts off the relationship, there's law enforcement involvement. And so, you know, they're not as tenacious or obsessed as sometimes we'd like to believe. Uh, they move on to the next victim and engage in similar behaviors. In this case, it appears He's escalating the behavior because the I, I read the report that in a previous relationship there was a strangulation, but that did not result in death, uh, and and that he had to be pulled off one of the his former victims. And in this case, you know, unfortunately, this ended in death. And so, yeah, this was a repeated pattern of behavior. You know, it's so tragic because when I covered this case and I I went up to Washington to interview. Crystal's mother, Josephine, and her stepdad, and one of her best friends. And then I went down to San Diego to talk to the detectives on the case. One of the things that the mom, who is a former detective, and we'll get into that, had said that Crystal felt a little bit safer around RJ because she uh, was a manager, a property manager. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess he had come in to rent a place. And so he had gone through credit checks. And so in Crystal's mind, Mm -hmm. she felt like, wow, okay, so if something had come up in these, as she, she thought in her head, background checks, something would have popped and we would have never rented to him. So he must be okay. And then You know, her mother said, hold on a second, Crystal. A credit check is not the same as a criminal background check. Correct. Correct. Yeah. These are two different things. And in fact, a lot of individuals also don't know that criminal background checks are generally um, state only. So Mm. if you have a criminal record, unless you're getting an FBI background check, which is a national uh, background check, which is quite costly, most employers aren't going to do this. Obviously, if you're applying to be in law enforcement or something where you have access to classified information or a very you know, vulnerable population, your employer may subject you to a federal background check, which would take into account all of your behavior in a variety of states, in all of the states. But even to, even to background check that is run routinely by a potential employer is only checking for arrest records, conviction records in the state in which you're in. So... The, the credit check is doing very little, and even a background check often doesn't uncover the information that you know Crystal might have needed to keep her to to be aware of who she, who he was and what he was capable of. Right, because Crystal and RJ were living in Arizona, and that is where she works. So if it were limited to that state, his offenses were in California. So even if it had been a criminal background check, which it does not appear to be, why would you need that to rent an apartment? Um, 
Yeah, Crystal would not have figured that out. And that is the really sad part is for me, that sense of she had an extra feeling of security that was not real. And, and, and that I find that really sad. So um, while RJ was starting to date Crystal, he had just been out on bail on this uh, last domestic violence charge. So he was out on bail and ended up in Arizona. Now, here's the background on the case and on their relationship. Crystal was a 30-year-old divorced single mother of two living in Phoenix, Arizona when she met RJ. As she's working at um, the property manager, Mm -hmm. that's where she meets him. And then they find out that they also have something in common. He also is a divorced dad, a single parent, also with a child. So there are some similarities there. And of course, Crystal is just gorgeous. If you look at her photos, she's just beautiful. You know, I suppose some people might find RJ attractive. He's the kind of guy who's got that that classic bodybuilder, way too uh, muscular there. We don't know, but the police had suspected, the mother suspects that he may have been taking steroids because he was so bulked up that it was possible. Um, That certainly would feed into the rage, but we have no idea. That's just something that that they all suspected based on his physique. And you'll see the photos uh, that we'll put up for everyone. So RJ was 32 at the time, former Marine. And the bodybuilder had lots of tattoos. They began dating. And then friends and family told Crystal that there was something that didn't seem right about RJ. They saw it. I don't think she saw it that that way. And from her perspective in the beginning, things were looking good. So the two planned a trip to San Diego. And this is where Crystal gets murdered. They stayed with another couple. This couple, they are friends of RJ's. So they stay in the apartment in San Diego with this other couple. On the morning of June 10th of 2016, Crystal was found dead by those friends that she was staying with. She was already dead when the paramedics arrived. And homicide detectives said that it was apparent that there had been a struggle. RJ and Crystal were heard fighting the night before. And according to the arrest warrant, Crystal and RJ went out to a bar in San Diego the evening before. Mm -hmm. RJ slapped Crystal in the face in the bar. Another patron at the bar tried to intervene. And then RJ got into it with them. So, um, that already tells you, right? We are for sure seeing the warning signs here. What is it about these public, you know, the thing about some abusers, they do everything privately. Occasionally certain things sneak out, but they manage to control it. But when you're at the level where you are publicly slapping someone, what does that tell you, Tracy, about what's going on with him and his behaviors? Yeah, so public displays of violence are, are much rarer in a domestic situation, and it, and it signals that somebody is, is out of control. Uh, many, um, many perpetrators of domestic violence, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, oh, the, that perpetrator should go to anger management, or they're mm-hmm. referring to anger management. Sure, they have an anger issue, but anger management isn't their issue because they generally don't go around and slap a police officer or their boss. Their their behavior is very controlled. Their anger is actually quite managed. 
and it's quite pointed at the victim. In this case, um, the fact that he engaged in violent behavior in a public setting says that, you know, he's becoming more unpredictable. Um, he is, you know, uh, taking greater risks with his use of violence. And um, you can see how this would then escalate to something at the lethal level. But you also said something that was very important that, you know, perhaps this wasn't his first time exhibiting abusive behaviors because the friends were picking up on something. And often when our friends and families pick up on a behaviors um, uh, that our partner is exhibiting and they point it out to us, it can create um, an opportunity for the perpetrator to use it to further isolate the victim. Oh, your family, your friends, they're complaining about me. They don't understand me. They don't understand our relationship. They're creating problems where they need not be. I'm upset because your friends and family don't trust me. They, in fact, turn the victimization or the, the abusive behavior around and make themselves the victim of really what's just a concerned family or friend. And so those are two points. What you, you know, his, his violence was escalating, becoming public. But I do question if this was the first time that it was actually public, because what were the friends and family observing that they warned her about? Mm -hmm. And they're visiting his friends, not her friends. I mean, ordinarily, no. that probably wouldn't have mattered, but they were visiting his friends. Mm -hmm. Now, police say that they have surveillance video from a security camera at the apartment complex where they were staying that allegedly shows RJ pulling Crystal into the elevator and then grabbing her by the throat. So this mm -hmm. is after the bar. Mm -hmm. So it's not improving things are getting worse these the, the violence is escalating here the arrest warrant states that crystal was strangled police say that they found her blood in the room that she was staying in plus the bathroom and the elevator crystal's injuries included multiple fractures to her voice box bruising on her legs her arms as well as facial contusions mm -hmm. i by no means am blaming the couple they were staying with. My question is, they did hear something, they heard an argument, but based on the level of her injuries and her bruises, I'm just wondering, and he's a big guy, I guess he was able to just pin her down and mm -hmm. therefore no one heard the struggle. That's what I'm questioning is, how did no one hear this part of it? Sure. I mean, again, you and I, Anna, we weren't there. We don't know what the acoustics are like in this particular building, you know, uh, where, where their location, the elevator was in relation to their apartment versus the neighbors. You know, again, I, I want to stress that it is a 100, the, the, the murder of Crystal Mitchell is 100% the responsibility of Raymond uh, McLeod. However, it's, I think it's natural for you to be asking this question for the general public, even for criminologists, like, where is the community in this? What happened at the bar? Could the police have been called at the bar? Did anybody hear anything from the time they got out of the car going up the steps into the elevator? It's it's very much, you know, it's not victim or community blaming to question what steps could have been taken. Um, I think it's very natural for us to wonder that. These are pretty extensive injuries. They resulted in blood being you know, this this is probably more than a slap. This is probably more than a shove, more than a push. Um, therefore, she must have been probably reacting verbally. Um, 
Yeah, these are things that I, I think, you know, we rack our brain about if you're an investigator or a researcher or an advocate, like, was there any point at which someone could have intervened? These are good questions. So when the paramedics arrive, obviously when the couple finds her dead, when the paramedics arrive, I mean, at this point, RJ's long gone. There is, I mean, he is just gone. And um, it's interesting how police figured out where he went and then then the trail kind of goes cold. So here is a clip from my interview with the San Diego police. Did he become suspect number one? Yes, he was immediately a person of interest in the case. And then very quickly as the investigation unfolded, he became the prime suspect. Can you give me a little bit more information on how he got away? It appears that he took Miss Mitchell's car, which was later recovered at the San Diego International Airport. And we later learned that Mr. McLeod rented a car from the airport and drove into Mexico. So at this point, police know he went into Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so the San Diego District Attorney's Office issues an arrest warrant for RJ. And then the marshals put him on their most wanted fugitive list. But it would be another six years before RJ was found. And what's interesting is that there were sightings or alleged sightings, we don't know, where they thought he was on the move and he'd been seen in different places. And he's very distinctive looking in the sense that he's a very big guy. And if you compare the photos of RJ at the height of his bodybuilding, and then you compare them to when he's arrested in El Salvador, you know, he has lost all that bulk. And I know he he tried to always cover those tattoos. In fact, you know, it was very hot in El Salvador when he was picked up, yet he was wearing long sleeves. So clearly... This guy's trying to blend in. Uh And what really bugs me, he got six years of freedom. He got six years to enjoy the sunrise and the sunset on a beach, to feel the wind, right? Just to feel it, to smell clean air, enjoy life, a good meal, have a laugh. He had those six years. Uh Crystal did not. Justice is delayed here. I hope it is not denied. But man... It makes me really mad. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's just so unfair. So Crystal's mother, Josephine, was clearly frustrated. While she appreciated the work of the police, she was so frustrated with the fact that this guy was enjoying a sunrise and a sunset while her daughter is dead and she's taking care of Crystal's two children. Okay? So you have children without a mother right now. So she started circulating wanted posters of her own. She took pictures of RJ and she started circulating them everywhere online to anyone who would share them. Here is a clip of my interview with Josephine. I decided to take matters into my own hands. Josephine was once a cop on the island of Guam when her military family was stationed there. I used to be a detective when I was younger. There were reportings of RJ sightings in Guatemala in 2017 and Belize in 2018. It's very possible that it could have been him. But then again, we also know that, you know, lots of people think that they see people who are wanted. No, he, he, he was uh, he was taking a lot of effort into hiding his identity, into uh, moving around Um you know, it's interesting what, that he ends up as the English teacher, you, you know, in this country. Um, question, 
you know, I don't want to give this guy more credit than than he deserves, but he was resourceful. Mm-hmm. Um, he even, from what I read, um, found someone on the internet that slightly this this persona that he takes on. Uh, what was the name? Jack Donovan. Jack Donovan. Donovan. Jack Donovan. You know, he even went to the lengths to make sure he found someone that you could see a likeness in. Um, yeah, so this was an individual who is a, you know, a predatory offender. We know he had at least two former victims and this one. And he is uh, taking a lot of efforts, a lot of attention into staying hidden, mm-hmm. uh, which, which, as you say, I mean, it's, it's, it's upsetting. It's, it's justice has been delayed. And I think your words were perfect. Let's hope that it's not denied. Oh, absolutely. In April of 2021, the U.S. Marshals offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to RJ's capture. At the time, it was the largest reward that the Marshals themselves had offered. So this is when the tip comes in. Marshals get a tip that RJ's teaching English in El Salvador using the alias Jack Donovan. It's believed that he had been living there for about three years. Okay, so he was in place for three years. He was taken into custody without incident on August 29th of 2022. On September 2nd, RJ pleaded not guilty to murder in a San Diego court. He's currently being held without bail and he faces 25 years to life if convicted. Here's the thing. Here's another thing that really upset me, really annoyed me. So if you look at the video from the court for his appearance cameras were allowed in the courtroom but the judge ordered that rj's face should be blurred his face is getting a level of protection that he does not deserve has not earned why is he being treated differently than other defendants i'm furious about this I have no idea what the judge is thinking, and I don't know if he issued a reasoning for that determination. There there could be something that there's something positive here. Perhaps he is trying to shield RJ's appearance so that it doesn't get more media attention, therefore potentially polluting a jury um, on the case to ensure that uh, you, you, you have a more impartial jury. That's that's not just to protect the offender in our criminal justice system, but that helps with the case outcome on, on behalf of the victim to make sure that the uh, you're not recruiting juror members who have some sort of you know infatuation or some propensity to believe this guy because they saw him before or they feel like they know the offender if they've seen the offender repeatedly in the media and therefore they might give them more of the benefit of the doubt. I'm not sure what the judge was thinking. But in some cases, blocking a lot of attention to the perpetrator allows for a more impartial, objective jury process and therefore could benefit the victim in the long run. Hopefully that's the reason. And the more mature part of myself that is more emotionally developed (laughs) hears you so clearly. And then the other part of me that has sat with this family and has sat with the detectives says, why do these suspects get so much more deferential treatment than the families and the victims? And it just, whenever I get the sense that they're just getting a little bit of special treatment, which it may not be, I get it. It may just be the way I'm looking at it. I get it. But 
it was just like, because at first I'm looking at the video, <laughs> Tracy, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what? Is there something wrong with my glasses? Because I'm like, everything else is clear, but I can't see his face. And then I realized that the media had blurred the face. And then I'm like, what? And then I researched it. And I'm like, oh, the judge ordered this. Yeah. You know, and, uh, ordered. my students get as angry as you when they talk about the way that victims are treated in the criminal justice system. One thing I always have to remind them is that we have an offender focused criminal justice system. There is no, uh, you know, the Constitution doesn't recognize the victim. State law does not recognize the victim. At most, the victim is a witness in a criminal uh, court case. They're just a witness. They don't have any rights. The, the you know, Senate has, has uh, shot down at at least two occasions that I'm aware of a victim's constitutional amendment. And so we don't have any, what you're asking for is some equality, some balance between the victim or in the case of homicide victim, the, the victim's family and the offender. All of the privileges and rights in our criminal justice system go to protect the offender. We have never recognized the role of the victim. Yeah. And I do. Again, I understand we must have a as fair a judicial system as possible. Mm-hmm. And the process has got to be fair because you don't want an innocent man or woman at all to ever be, you know, mm-hmm. um, arrested, convicted of something that they didn't do. And I realize that. And that yeah. is the goal to get this as fair as possible. And some states do have a victim's bill of rights. And yes. every time, and I don't, I have no idea whether every state does, maybe you know, I I don't know. Every but state when, does not yet. Yeah. Mm, and when I find those, the victim's um, bill of rights for a state and I'm involved in a case, I'll call that prosecutor if there's a problem and say, you know what, I'm reading your victim's bill of rights. And right now he or she is telling me that you are not permitting an advocate of his or her choice that you are stymieing this part of it. And again, it's it's like at every turn, you have got to fight for the voice of the victims and the survivors because the system is so cold to them, no matter how hard they try. The system is just, as you said, it's built for the defendant, not for the survivors. And it's just cold and just heartless. And so I think we have to fight at every possibility for some for some justice for them and by justice i mean beyond the perpetrator i mean within the system to not be treated unfairly coldly and as if they are the criminal right because even if he does serve prison time which i i'm confident he will you know you still have children without their mother you still have a mother without her daughter and we don't have any way to rectify that and i think that's what's getting at your gut right now is the fact like that we can't we're giving him special protections that this family will never have and and i think as a human being right like there is no way to right this wrong no there's no way to right this wrong no there isn't there really there really isn't and i i am really pleased that the person who turned him in was the student according to the authorities i really do think that there's just that much justice there Mm -hmm. You know, because this student was so smart. That photo that we see of him in the in the um, classroom, that was taken by the student and sent to the authorities. So, you know, I love it. You teach them just enough English to turn on you as they should and do the right thing and do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So I believe that that person will be receiving the reward. 
And um, absolutely they should. They did the right thing. Now, um, so right now, you know, we'll see where this goes in the justice system. We'll see whether he's going to end up going to trial, whether he's going to. We have no idea. We are at the very, very beginnings of this because we Uh he's literally, you know, just been apprehended. Uh What's important here is to remember Crystal's two children and Uh they are living with their grandparents, Crystal's Uh parents. And this week, you know, when RJ was captured, one of the things that Josephine has been doing, the mother with the children, is to visit Crystal's grave. And they took a moment when he was captured. And it's a hard word. I mean, I can't say it's it's a celebration. Mm-hmm. That word was used. It's 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 feels uncomfortable to me given bittersweet. it's bittersweet. Yeah. But it was to recognize the moment that this man has been captured. Yeah. And they yeah. are 6 years older now and they understand a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, um I remain hopeful here. I remain hopeful. Let's let the criminal justice system, let the courts do what they do. Let's hope we get justice here for Crystal. Our next case is out of Memphis, Tennessee, where the heiress to a billion-dollar fortune was abducted and murdered, but not for ransom as thought initially. 34-year-old Eliza Fletcher came from a prominent Tennessee family. Her family owns a hardware company worth $3 billion, and it is owned privately. It is not a public company. So on the morning of September 2nd, Eliza went off on her usual 4 a.m. run by the University of Memphis. When I read 4 a.m. run, I mean, I can't tell you how many women are abducted when they're running. But to be running, and she did this all the time. 4 a.m. by yourself, I don't care whether you are a man or a woman, it it makes you vulnerable. You know, you're in a vulnerable state. I'm not saying that it would have been any better if there had been two or three of them running together, but I don't know. I just always, I always, every time I see someone alone on a road, I'm like, oh no, but it's so many of these cases that I report. And that's, that's the moment of opportunity for the attacker. So when She didn't return by 7 a.m. Her husband called the police, and Richard Fletcher and Eliza have two children. Their wedding was so spectacular, it was featured in a magazine. I mean, it was spectacular. I mean, gorgeous. According to police, later that morning, a woman on a bike found Eliza's phone and then a pair of sandals, like slide-on, slides. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're made by the athletic brand Champion, so many of you can picture them in your head. The items were found along Central Avenue. This is important because that gave police Mm -hmm. a moment and an intersection to start looking at surveillance Mm -hmm. cameras. They kind of knew what her route was. Um, And here's what's interesting. While that investigation is going on, the family makes this announcement. You know, they're offering a reward. And and they make this, they release this video, you know, um, please don't harm her. Even though she, there's no, no kidnappers haven't asked for anything. But when you have someone from such a rich family, I mean, not just like wealthy, but we're talking billionaires. Immediately they think, dear Lord, she's been kidnapped for money. And that was not the case. And that was not the case at all. This was a random act 
of violence, which is so frightening. Police pulled surveillance in the area and the camera actually captured Eliza running. Then this black GMC um, SUV, this SUV passes her, stops for her to run by. And then allegedly the footage shows that a man gets out, chases Eliza. There's a struggle. Eliza fights so hard. He drags her into the vehicle. And this is the part that's very disturbing. The vehicle sits there for four minutes and doesn't move. And my guess is it's in those four minutes that every horrible thing is being done to Eliza and she's killed in those four minutes. And then the truck leaves. So it made it possible. Now police have a time of the abduction. They have a description of the vehicle. They have a partial plate. They have her phone. And then they have those slides, the sandals. They test the sandals for DNA. And a match comes up. Because the DNA found on those sandals that he left behind because Eliza fought so hard, connects, matches with someone who's in the system and is a repeat offender. So now it's just a matter of time of zeroing in on on this suspect. The DNA matches the man named Cleotha Abston Henderson. Sometimes he uses Henderson, sometimes he doesn't. So um, for the most part, he's referred to as Cleotha Abston. So he is now the prime suspect in this case. And police say once they identified him and then and they had the sandals, they were able to recover footage. This is later on footage of him wearing those same sandals at a movie theater the day before the kidnapping. So they are now piecing everything together of where Eliza was and where this guy was. And police then were able to, obviously, now that they know who it is based through the DNA, they know where he lives. They get access to his phone. His phone pings at the exact time and place where Eliza was last seen and where Eliza was seen being abducted on the video. So everything is lining up forensically here. And the vehicle... Because the police had noticed in the struggle that the um, that also the, the vehicle was damaged. So they found not only a vehicle, he was borrowing that car, the partial plate matched, but the damage that they saw in the video also matched. So it's like, you know, one more. And we know her DNA is going to be found in there. They haven't gotten there yet. But I, I mean, if this is indeed the suspect, if this is indeed the vehicle that was used to abduct her, her DNA is going to be all over it. Mm-hmm. You can wash that thing. And he was, and his relatives and friends said he had been washing that thing the whole day, trying to get it clean and washing his clothes in the sink. He mm-hmm. went to visit his brother. You know, you can wash that forever, but there's just mm-hmm. some stuff you just can't, can't get rid of. So they arrest him for kidnapping. But the problem is no one knows where Eliza is. He is, pre- she is presumed dead, but the hope is that she is alive. So on September 6, police confirmed that they have found Eliza's body. She was found in a vacant lot. There was a trash bag near her body, and it contained the running shorts 
that she was last seen in. So not only was she dumped like trash, but so were her shorts. 38-year-old Cleotha Apston is then charged with first-degree murder. This is a man with a criminal history since the age of 11. 11. I, I want to play something, and then, I, uh, Tracy, I want to talk. So Action News 5 has done uh, a marvelous job, an extensive job of reporting on his criminal past. I mean, they've got it all in all the records. So let's just play a clip so you can see. And this is only a part of his criminal record. Cleotha Abstin's first brush with the law was in June of 95 when he was charged with theft at just 11 years old. His juvenile court records show he was part of the gang LMG, which stands for the Lemoyne Garden Gangsters, and that between October 95 and June 2000, Abstin was detained at least 16 times for charges ranging from unlawful possession of a weapon to rape. Court records show Abstin was convicted on the rape charge. His victim, a male, was asked to testify in court, but details weren't available in the record. Tracy, the amazing thing is that is only part of his criminal record. Those are his early years. Uh, it's, it's almost as if he has not lived, for the most part, too many years that were crime-free. Yeah, I mean, fortunately for the general public and uh, society, we don't have a lot of these individuals. And as a criminologist, Luckily, they're a very small percentage, very, very small percentage of the criminal population. This is an individual who appears to be unable to be rehabilitated or has not come in contact with a, a program. But I have no idea. Again, I, my sympathy always, I was a victim advocate, lies with victims of crime. But in the, the, the longer I study victimization, the more I question the system that does or does not respond to victims either in the immediate aftermath or leading up to the crime. This is an individual who enters the criminal justice system at 11. Uh, you know, I, I, again, he is solely responsible. If, if this is the perpetrator, it is his responsibility. It, and, and, and he has rational choice. He's an adult. But I can't help as a criminologist to not question what was going on at 11 when he enters the system. What kind of services were, were brought to him? What was happening with his family of origin? Um, you know, so that that's the first piece. The second piece that you're getting at is how does an individual, I think, have this many run-ins with the law, whether they result in an adjudication as a juvenile, whether he's found guilty as an adult, and the individual is still allowed to operate on um on the street. And I think those are questions that the general public should be answering. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated case. There are numerous cases in which perpetrators of horrendous violence are put back on the street and re-engage in that violence, infuriating us as a, as a public. Um, and there aren't a lot of explanations. You know, students often, they come to a criminal justice program like the one I teach in, and they're like, tell us about serial killers. Tell us about, you know, predatory rapists. You know, I can't tell you a lot about these individuals because fortunately for society, they're few and far between, but when they meet the headlines, they capture our attention. Um, and as you said, the only theory we have that kind of makes sense when there's predatory offenses is, is, is opportunity-based theories. You know, that this individual, 
encountered an opportunity. The uh, unfortunately, Eliza Fletcher was, um, you know, uh, in a vulnerable position, alone and isolated. And this individual, whoever the perpetrator is, we suspect that it is Mr. Abstin, uh, but that's not confirmed quite yet. Uh, but had this opportunity and this access. So I think you're asking. This discussion uh, kind of hinges on a couple of things. What was going on with the intervention when he's first seen in the system at 11? Why didn't that work? What happened? What kind of services were given to him? After we've got a couple of violent offenses acquired in, early on in his adulthood, why is he back um, on the street? Uh, and what The system must have deemed him rehabilitated to release him. Well, uh, this, like we said, that was only part of his criminal history. You know, we need right. another hour to get through everything that he's right. been charged and convicted of. So in May of 2000, Cleotha kidnapped, of all, of all people to kidnap, a criminal defense attorney. Right. Okay. So he kidnaps him at gunpoint and he makes the man go to the ATM mm-hmm. and withdraw money. He was 16 at the time. Uh, but he was tried as an adult. By this point, the courts are like, we're done with you. You know, this is, you know, you at 16, y- you by now should know better. And he's sentenced to 24 years in prison. He served a 20-year prison sentence for that kidnapping and was released in 2020. And the criminal defense attorney, the victim in this case, you know, made it very clear that he really thought that he could have been killed, mm-hmm. that it wasn't. And one would think that a criminal defense attorney has been around enough people in the world of crime to know when someone is just like, I just need some money. Listen, buddy, just let's give me the money and I'm not going to hurt you versus the there is just like a paper thin chance that I will not be killed because it's looking like I. it doesn't matter whether I give him the money or not. Ultimately, he was not killed but but that is the fear that he felt that he picked up on so it just just disturbs me to no end so he had been out since 2020 been out for two years the u.s marshal service they're the ones who apprehended him it wasn't too difficult police say identifying the suspect Mm -hmm. and then apprehending the suspect the brother his brother told Mm -hmm. police that he had been acting weird, you know, definitely weird. As we said, washing clothes in the sink, Mm -hmm. you know, for hours trying to clean out that GMC. So then after her body's found, of course, then he is charged with first degree murder. Cleotha Abstin appeared in Shelby County Criminal Court yesterday, Wednesday, September 7th. He did not enter a plea. He's being held without bail. They're going to figure out whether he'll be given bail. I kind of hope in this case, no, I don't think so. I hope not for the sake of the public. Um, Tracy, there's something you were talking about before we started recording about how when there's a random act of violence like this, where the victim and the uh, killer do not know each other, that it it, um, has quite an effect on the public. Yes. Yeah. I think two things are going on. One thing that I, I'm sure is immediately obvious, right? Like this idea when, you know, when there's some sort of familial violence or there's intimate partner violence, most of us can say, oh, you know, it wouldn't happen to me because I would see this sign or I would have this access to this resource, right? 
But a random act of violence, I think, taps into kind of our most primal instinct of the fact of how vulnerable we all are and the fact that no matter what you do in life to protect yourself, random acts of violence are possible. And therefore, I think they frighten us in a way that other types of crime maybe don't frighten us. The other thing is yesterday I was teaching the course victims and victimization here. And one of the, and we talked about this random act of violence. We talked about this particular case. And a student said, you know, I think that um, these kind of random acts of violence in a very odd way unite us. And, uh, you know, and, and we had this discussion after he said this and, and kind of as a class, we, we, we thought, you know, when there's incredible acts of humanity that get highly publicized, we all feel good about sharing this common bond between people we don't even know. And I think something strangely, the inverse occurs with these random acts of violence. We feel united to humanity and our vulnerability. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, that, you know, the, the power of these random acts of violence not only frighten us, but connect us to one another. And in this case, connect us to this victim that we think, wow, no matter what I do, I, I, I am vulnerable. This could mm -hmm. be me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, what's interesting is that there's been such an outpouring of reaction in the community, especially from the running community, that um, a local runner's club is organizing a 10-mile run this week called Let's Finish Liza's Run. We've just had a series of high-profile cases, whether that's Amar Arbery or Eliza Fisher, in which you have somebody who's just out for a jog, just out to do something healthy, stress-reducing. We all need this in our society. And you it's your last day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... They're, you know, they're healing in their own way in this community. Um, but there is a lot of anger and a lot of politicians, elected officials, um, you know, whether it's the sheriff, the DA, the police, all being asked, how did this happen? How was this career criminal able to do this as charged, as charged? So much more of a deeper discussion there for the community on this one. Well, it is time for our comment section. These are the crimes you all are talking about on our social media. Uh, our producer, Will Updike, is here, and so is Jackie O, joining us today for the comment section. Um, Hi, Anna and Jackie. <laughs> she's <laughs> waving her paw. <laughs> How's it going, Tracy? Great to see you again. Good to see you, too, Will. All right, so we got an interesting one this week. We have a fast food drug deal gone awry with a state official mixed up in a sting. So this case comes out of Albany, Louisiana. Bridget Hall, who was at the time of arrest, the head of the Louisiana State Board of Private Security Examiners, was caught in the middle of an alleged drug deal outside of a fast food restaurant. Now, according to the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office, the drug dealer in this case was Stephen McCarthy. All right. And he was being closed in on by a member of the Louisiana General Attorney General's office. Uh, and they were looking to arrest Stephen McCarthy at the time that Hull was found in this alleged transaction. So this sheriff's office was contacted by representatives from the Attorney General office. They were looking for backups to aid in this arrest. And 
What ended up happening with the arrest is McCarthy fled before this backup arrived, and he ended up striking another car in the getaway attempt, police said. That vehicle, the driver, supposedly they sustained minor injuries but are okay. McCarthy was eventually taken into custody with no injuries. Uh, But like I said, Bridget Hull was also arrested in all this, and they were found to allegedly be in the middle of a drug transaction. So now both of these suspects, Hull and McCarthy, were charged with possession with intent to distribute narcotic drugs and possession of a firearm with controlled and dangerous substances. Uh, I'll show a picture later of like everything they got. I'm not quite sure how Hull is involved in the weapons charge, but uh, that, that, that'll all be developed. It is still a, an, an ongoing situation. Um, so people had a lot to say about this happening at a fast food restaurant. Nemo 713 said all of that and some Baconators, you're in for a wild night. Uh, which, yeah, couldn't agree more. That uh, that sounds like a, an all right time. Sarah C said, who wouldn't want a chocolate frosty to wash down all those edibles? Um, <laughs> so we, I, I got to show the picture at this point because what they recovered, uh, there is a large looking weapon. Don't know a lot about guns, but it looks pretty serious. Uh, there's some bags of powder, which, you know, uh, and then also, though, there's like cart- like what looks like just like the little cartridges and like some bags of some edibles. So someone said, I was not expecting the second picture to look like they robbed a cartel member. That comment came from <laughs> like button, uh, which, yeah, it looks pretty wild that someone had all of this on them at a fast food restaurant. L Spicy said, you're telling me these aren't the Happy Meal toys, which... Uh, decent decent curtis brown i think uh had the best comment of them all uh he said in response to the drug deal would you like some fries with that which an <laughs> upsell from a fast food uh restaurant would always be great um but yeah that that's gonna do it for today's comment section uh if we get any updates on this case i will update it on the youtube community page uh as always if you want a chance to get your question or your comment featured on the show go ahead and leave those over on our youtube community page we're also over on instagram and facebook thanks so much and i'll see you all next week wow i'm speechless on that one i mean i i was having a hard time following it i'm like what there's Who? a lot of ins and outs yeah this to a, be fair. I, what is this this is like you know a scorsese movie it's so complicated yes yes yeah. well i don't eat a lot of fast food but i heard it's highly addictive and so oh. this is just like this is really up in the ante here on that mm. whole addiction angle <laughs> professor tracy coming in with the clothes i love it i love it all right i'll see you all next week it is the end it is indeed the end um so tracy where can people find you are you on social media is there um anything that they can find you at the yeah, university you that can. kind of stuff yeah you can find me at the uh faculty web page at the university of new haven and i am working on some sort of twitter TikTok. i don't know these accounts and i'm trying to get with it my kids are helping me so hopefully i'll have <laughs> i'll have a social media platform soon yes TikTok is waiting for you, Tracy. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. There you go, right? Uh, you can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. I sometimes talk about crime. Most of the time I talk about my friend over here, Jackie. Mm-hmm. Um, I apologize if, um, you know, for bringing her on today, but she's not been well. So she wanted to be down here and um, I just couldn't concentrate on the podcast knowing she was up there in distress. So my apologies to everyone if this was a distraction. Trying to keep it professional but with a heart.
Um, so of course you can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts if you prefer to watch us we're on YouTube just subscribe to our YouTube channel you can receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com I'm your host Anna Garcia until next week this is True Crime Daily the podcast and as we always say don't do crime <laughs>